Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Jonathan. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. I mean, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's really an honour to be on, to be asked. I, I think like, I've been, I almost got like, a sense of dread of being asked to come on here. And it's, <laughs> it, 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 it's a good thing. It's, a good, it's not just because, I mean, not just because I love Gaudam, but I've been trying to work out why I had this sense of dread. And I think it was possibly because of the topic, which is, which is growing up. Mm. Jay Rayner says something about, podcasting and he said that the best guests tend to be the ones that have had therapy because they're very good at talking about themselves and divulging and I've never had therapy and I often feel like I should and I'm very very bad at talking about myself and I don't revisit that time of my life so much so I I feel like this could be a therapy session that's okay we're ready for that you'll be the first people to actually like hear about what my teenage young adulthood was like for a very very long time that's an honor I really agree with what you're saying as well there like I think I tried therapy for the first time at the end of last year or like you start to talk about things to do with your childhood things that you've never you might have experienced and thought about a million times but have never even formed into sentences before and it can just be such a strange experience of like I've literally never said any of these things before in my life and like it can be a little overwhelming, but this is a safe space. So it's an honour to share whatever you feel comfortable sharing with us on the show today. You're right. One of the problems was when I was asked to come up with sort of a piece of writing that I had made when I was younger, that was in itself a huge problem. Um, and by the, sort of the act of looking for it brought up a lot of things that I just hadn't thought about in such a long time. Mm. But I think one of the problems was is that one anything that I've written physically would be at my parents house so it's it's sort of unaccessible to me 
So that leaves anything, everything that's electronic. And I've tried sort of consciously or unconsciously to delete most of the trace of me electronically from the internet since maybe before 2015. And it's, it's, not, um, it's not like a fear of being cancelled. It's more like an obliteration of like, that person that I sort of used to be. I, I, I feel like I shouldn't be, I don't want to be reminded of like what I was like and all the mistakes that I would have made and all like the quality of my writing from back then. So, so some of it's gone because I deleted it, but some of it's gone just because the websites no longer exist. Yeah, it's just, it's just sort of vanished from the internet, which is, I think, a really good thing in a sense, because I think if you're growing up today with everything you do on record as a child like imagine if all your msn conversations were sort of just just there like (laughs) even the statuses like that's enough to ruin my career (laughs) but you know what it's it's interesting you say that jonathan because i remember probably about in 2015 fresh on twitter and being very like up in arms about the fact that all of these like tweets were resurfacing at the time from like 2012 of people you know saying like heinous things and I was like I don't know what I, I think I was on some kind of hype and I was like oh like well I never said those types of things when I was growing up so like what like you know what um why are people like um trying to hide their their past selves yeah <laughs> double standards <laughs> yeah exactly but like now looking back to myself at that moment I'm like oh my god like obviously like as much as it's good to hold people accountable you can change significantly and like and yeah some children aren't given the tools um or the education to you know not say stupid shit yeah be socially aware yeah I mean like obviously like you should at that age be sort of held accountable for what you say at the time but I think it's it's a healthy thing to be to sort of make mistakes as a child and and to to grow yeah that's that's something which I worry about about today's generation what that will will look like and I think I mean I've been thinking about what defines our generation and I mean I suppose if you want to call it millennials and it's not the year 2000, it's the fact that we were the last generation to remember what it was like before the internet and before the internet became the structure of all our lives. And we were at just the right age when the internet would become our lives. And we we sort of developed a knowledge of how to navigate it in a way that only a very few people from the older generation did. But we've also done it in a way where if you come into it now, like the internet is just monopolized by huge corporations. But I mean, I remember when I was younger, it was like a wild west. It was like sort of like kind of frontierism. Like you, there wasn't like a simultaneous experience that you and your friends were all doing at the same time. I remember like I would come in and come into school when you would like, I've been on this site or like that site. And I've like, ne- like I've never been on this site before. Um, and you could kind of do what, what you wanted in a sense, um, without, mm. I know, without feeling like you were being looked at or without having to kind of like perform something publicly on Instagram or Twitter. It was like a very, um, it was a very yeah. strange time. And I, I don't think it's a time that we'll ever, 
will ever go back to on the internet. There's like a sense of anonymity, I feel like, for our generation when all of those like chat rooms started and you kind of, the point of it was to have connections with people far away from you, whereas now it seems like it's more of a place for people you know and that you want to be around to like congregate and like project themselves, whereas before it was like, you know, basketball lover 287 has like, <laughs> like, likes my post and we just have a conversation. I don't know what they look like. I don't know who they are. Like, and there's, there's obviously benefits to both versions in terms of safety and security and all of that stuff. But yeah, you're right. It was a completely different time. And like, we will never really know, well, we don't know the long-term effects of any of these things on like our socialization, like our self-image, like all of these things I think are, it's going to be interesting to watch unfold over the next few decades. I would love to read the book which will eventually get written about the influence of 4chan on society now. And it, it's quite it's telling mm -hmm. that the, the two extracts that I've sent you are, are from forums or are related to forums. But if you look at 4chan, which was a completely anonymous space, like completely everyone posed as anonymous. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, at the time I was on it and it, it was kind of this very thrilling place as a child or sort of young teenager. It's something you knew you shouldn't be on. And then you kind of grow out of it, but there, there were a lot of people who just didn't grow out of it. And you, you kind of saw 4chan turn from this quite utopian space, which was completely libertarian, yeah. to this extremely right-wing space, um, which it is now. Mm. And of course, you've got stuff like QAnon coming out of all of that. So it's been this very influential space on society. Um, and it would be, be interesting to see what future historians say about it. But yeah, I mean, sure. I remember, I, th I think forums were like just a huge part of my childhood from the age of like 14, 15. And it was, I suppose, in the way that you might um, curate your Instagram or Twitter now based on what you like in real life. I think back then you would find the forum for like what you want, the stuff that you like to do and post on it. So, I mean, I, po I was really, really interested in films um, when I was a teenager. So I was on a film forum and I just remember I mean, if you think Twitter, like, started internet beef, like, you were not on a forum. Like, I, I remember the, the fights <laughs> that used to go on and, like, the arguments and debates, it, they would last days and weeks. And, like, I mean, I literally just remembering now, I, I would wake up in the morning, like, fuming, and I would go, not on my computer, I'd go to an internet cafe down the road or I'd go to like Palmer's Green Library. Oh my God, and vintage. I would, I would pay for an hour's worth of internet to like fight someone <laughs> on the internet in on a public computer. And th I mean, the idea of that is just like very, very strange to me now. But um, I, I guess like it did, I mean, looking back on it, I guess it did sort of inculcate this um, familiarity with uh, internet beef, which I, I have kind of carried on a little bit. <laughs> there's always like, there's always room for a little bit of beef. Um, and just before we get into your extracts, um, I wanted to firstly shout out a seafood boil that you posted on your yes. Twitter. 
I've been thinking about it since I saw it. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to ask, like, um, before we get into the extract, what are some of your favourite ways to find new restaurants and new, like, food experiences? There's two ways you can do it. Um, one is obsessively trawling the internet. And that could be Instagram, it could be, um, it could be Twitter. Like, if you, if you go on Instagram, it can lead you down... Um, you down rabbit holes especially once you find these not influencers but you might find someone who sort of reviews very specific things so for example i found one the other day called the the cholent connoisseur sort of named after the chicken connoisseur and like cholent is this like very homely um, ashkenazi jewish stew and this guy had just like gone around um, London and gone around north of England reviewing Cholent's and that led, that, that led me down a rabbit hole to love all that. these Jewish delis so which much. are kind of off <laughs> like, off the mm. radar of like normal food media and like definitely off the radar of influencers so yeah. that's one way of doing it um, but I, I really think the the only way you can really do it is to walk and to to do it on foot it's much easier now than before to find places for your like Google um, reviews or via, I mean, one very good way of doing it, I'm not on them, but um, delivery apps, because more and more small restaurants are signing up to the apps. It's a way of making themselves visible. Yeah. But you still miss a lot. Like the only way you can really do it is by foot and by by walking around. When I write about restaurants, the the food isn't incidental um, because it is important, but what I really am writing about is sort of place and and, and London and, and sort of the context of how that restaurant yeah. um, is there at that particular place at that particular time. I love that and that really shines through in your writing and I just also think on a personal level like whenever I go anywhere the first thing that I'm looking for the thing that situates me in that place does tend to be what food is available and like you know what what I can sort of pick up from a local bakery or like discover like um you know from a from a street corner so yeah I definitely feel that so yeah speaking of food I would love for you to read out your extract for us which I think is a one of your first sort of reviews or one of your early sort of reviews of a of a restaurant or a, a food shop yeah, I'll preface it by, I guess, talking about forums at the time. So once I, I migrated from film forums, and one of the reasons why I migrated was I actually got banned from the forum in the end. I, I can't actually remember why. I don't... <laughs> what were you saying? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to unpack here. Um, <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember the reason why, but I, I, got, into, I got into food around... And restaurants, I guess, around the age of maybe 21, 22. And at the time, there were two big food forums online if you wanted to talk about food, because you, you didn't really go on Twitter and you didn't go on Instagram. Um, so you didn't really, well, they would, I think they kind of existed, but they weren't these big things they are now. And there was one forum called eGullet, and there was one forum called Chowhound. And eGullet was like the much more prestigious forum. Um, and you went on there to talk about fine dining and you, you talked about food media. 
And what was really interesting about eGullet is that lots of um, food writers who are quite big now were on it back then. So like people like Jay Rayner were on it, Marino Laughlin is on it, um, Tim Haywood was on it. But at that time, Tim Haywood wasn't even um, famous. He was just this guy who was a poster. And eGullet was really funny, like looking back on it, because there's so much bitching that goes on and so much um, sort of intra-critic and intra-writer gossip, which doesn't really happen on Twitter anymore. So like you go back and look at the posts and you've got like Tim Haywood sort of slamming Observer Food Monthly saying that, why isn't there an actual, like, why is there not a good food magazine? <laughs> and then someone like replies like, oh, m maybe you should, maybe who's going to edit this magazine? Egullet's Tim Haywood. And of course, like Tim Haywood became big and did edit that magazine in the end. It's, it's funny seeing what they were like just before, um, just before they were big. And it turns out that they were sort of posters exactly the same as, as us, um, as me. And then Chowhound was different. It was this outgrowth of um, an American forum. And it, I think Chowhound started in New York. It was kind of a way of talking about small, difficult to find restaurants within New York's outer boroughs, like particularly Queens. And Lon the UK board was quite small in comparison and it, it was mainly London focused and it was mainly filled with American expats who just talked about why they couldn't get stuff that they could find back in America. So like the common Chowhound, UK Chowhound post was, why can I not get Mexican food in London? Or why can I not find good Mexican food in London? It's a good question. Well, it's <laughs> the, the answer is because there isn't a Mexican, a significant Mexican diaspora here. Um, but that didn't seem to make a difference. It was like, why aren't things sort of mm. like America? And that was kind of tiring. And for me, the moment things changed was actually when this, young guy called Justin Forres started posting on the, um, the London board and he had just come from New York. He was a student. He was kind of this punk kid around my age who was really obsessed with food. And he came onto the board trying to do stuff which he was doing in New York. And he would often be frustrated. He'd be like, why can I not get like good Uzbeki food in London? Or why... Um, I've been told to go to Kingston Road for Vietnamese food and like compared to this place in New York, it's like third rate. Like, and I found this a little bit annoying. But then as soon as he got used to London and he got used to, used to living here and realised that there are fundamental differences between London and New York, his mindset started to change and he started to write about these really these really incredible restaurants, which were mainly, um, mainly South Asian. So he was the first person to write about Thatukada in um, East Ham. And he, I think he was the first person to write about Lahore Nahari, which is this uh, Pakistani restaurant in Upton Park. And I actually think he was the first person to write about Silk Road in Campbell. My favourite. I think before... <laughs> we, love, we love Silk Road. <laughs> yeah. It is great. And I think he 
yeah, he still he still maintains that Jay Rayner ripped off his review. Um, I'm, I'm not oh, sure if that's really? true. Yeah, because Jay Rayner wrote an earlier review, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. It looks so. If you like, it looks like Jay Rayner was the first person to write about it, but actually, it was Justin. And I think that gave me the confidence to think, you know what, he's right. Like, there's there are these really great restaurants which are not being written about and it's because we're not honoring what we have here we're kind of we've still got this very this mindset which is very much in deference to america which american food media decides what the worthwhile cuisines are and often that's based on what is prevalent in america and the thing about london is i mean london's a really unusual city in that I can't think of anywhere else which is a financial capital, a cultural capital and political capital in the same way London is. But it's it's also an imperial capital, which lots of people forget. Like It was an imperial capital. It, it was the biggest and most important city of an empire. Yeah. And London's food culture is completely informed by that and particularly the partitions that Britain created, both in, in Africa and South, in South Asia and in, uh, in the Caribbean as well, um, and, and in Hong Kong. So London's food culture is one, it's informed by Europe, but it, it is also informed by this empire as well. Where I lived at the time was um, North London in, in Palmer's Green. So obviously you've got this really Greek Cypriot community um, who lived there because of the because of the Cypriot War, and you've also got a huge um, a huge Turkish and Kurdish community down in Green Lanes. And I decided I, I decided to write about a small restaurant on Green Lanes because it was, it was I mean I've spent my whole life going up and down Green Lanes, and it was something that I was very familiar with. Um, so, yeah, I decided to write about a very small cafe that had opened next to one of the big restaurants. And all they sold was awful. But yeah, you, you want me to read out the review? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yes, please. So, inexplicably and an inexplicably unsung gem in the Green Lanes Turkish scene. All the more so since it's owned by one of the biggest and most blogged about restaurants on the road. And Tapila Shige Salonu is next door to its larger namesake and two doors down from the excellent baklava shop, advertised by a sign saying Kunefe. Shige Salonu means liver shop, and unsurprisingly, the menu is predominantly awful with only a few concessions for a more casual diner. The dishes, kebabs, the liver kebab is their signature dish and consists of three skewers of small cubed meat. The brilliance of this is that they stud the kebabs with pieces of fat, so you get a great contrast in texture between the soft chew of the liver and the yielding crispy fat. Heart kebabs have a pleasing bouncy texture and similar taste to regular lamb meats, while the kidneys are the best of their kind that I've tasted. I usually hate them by themselves. The sweetbread kebabs are my favourite, huge and bulbous with a sweet offaly flavour, an excellent rendition. They also don't mind you asking if you can mix the kebabs, so if you go on your own and want to sample a lot, then plumping for a mixed kebab would be a good option. Apart from the skewers, they also do admirable versions of chicken on the bone and kofteh, as well as an absurdly cheap Turkish take on liver and onions they call sautéed liver, where the liver is cooked in a pan until meltingly soft and mashed with onions into a creamy mince. All of these come with flatbread, onion and parsley salad, tomatoes, radish and pickled chilies, so they make a meal in themselves. Even if it was just the kebabs, this would be a destination place. But it's, it's the desserts that make this really special. The kunefe is what you see everyone inside eating, and it's what the chef is most proud of. He boasts that you can't find it anywhere else in London. It's a dish from southeast Turkey, opposed to the predominantly northern dishes you find in London, and consists of a shredded vermicelli-like pastry cooked in butter over circular skillet, stuffed with cheese, I think mozzarella, but I'm not sure, drenched with syrup and pistachios, and served hot at the table. 
It's a triumph of texture, the crispy, almost burnt casing, oozing elastic cheese, all swimming in a rich syrup. Order it with some savoury cream to cut through the richness of the dish or share it. They also do katma, which is the only dish I haven't tried. You could eat a kebab, all the trimmings, unlimited tea and share a kunefe for about £7 each, which I think is a laughable price to pay for cooking this good. I've eaten a lot of good Turkish food in Green Lanes and on Kingston Road, but I haven't found anywhere else like it. So I'd be interested if anyone has found these dishes, particularly the desserts in other restaurants. Otherwise, an excellent, unique addition to Green Lanes that deserves to be far more lauded than it is. And this is an edited version of the post that I originally written, because what actually happened was, is that I came back to this post a few months later, and I read it, and I hated it. Uh, I, I thought, this sounds like an advertisement. It sounds too gushing. Like, I, I hate the way this is written. Mm. And I messaged the forum moderator to ask them if they could delete my entire post. And the forum moderator said, well, it, it's a really good post, and people have been replying to it, so you shouldn't feel worried about it. And I was like, no, 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 I want to... I want to edit it to this and I sort of gave them a short thing and they said no well it doesn't make sense if people have already replied to it and it's now this different thing so I think they allowed me to edit it sensitively so I don't know what the first thing that I wrote was but it has I think it's it's quite a reoccurring thing in my life um, as a writer that I come back to stuff that I've written, even if it's like a few months later, and I'm like, no, this is this is rubbish. Like, what was I thinking of at the time? Yeah, yeah. It's so strange to me because I read this and I'm like, that is great, and that's a great review. Yeah. And like, I, I, you know, I would be proud to have written something like that because it it worked. It was effective in its purpose. Like, it made me want to go to the the restaurant that you describe and eat the food and like slather myself in syrup and cheese and (laughs) (laughs) and just get involved I mean have you sort of I guess you you say it's a kind of recurring thing in your life even prior to writing was that kind of part of your personality have you as a kid were you quite hard on yourself and and is that where it sort of stems from or you know how does this relate to baby Jonathan so that's an interesting question. I, I would say, as a child, I was kind of insufferable. Um, <laughs> I, I, was, I was a massive, massive nerd. And I, I say that it, I, I, was, I was clever, but in a way that I, I used cleverness as my identity. Like, I, in school, I was, like, the clever kid. And I think when I realised... I wasn't clever or not as clever as I thought I was. It was probably around the time I went to, I I left school and went to university. And at university, I I had this huge crisis of confidence. And I think the thing which not a lot of people know about me apart from my friends is that I, I studied maths. And from a very young age, I knew the trajectory that was going on. I, I was going to study maths. I was, I mean, I was very good at maths. I, I love science. Um, I, I felt like I was, a, I was a logical thinker, not a creative thinker. And 
at university, I, I, I realized that either I, either I wasn't as good as I thought or I was losing passion for it. And I just didn't know what to do because I, for so long I had defined myself as this person who is a mathematician. And it took me a very, very long time to come to terms with that. So I, I, left, I left university with a, a really bad degree. Um, and I mean, a part of that was because I just wasn't going to my lectures. I was, I was going to film studies lectures. I was, I was, going, to, um, I was going to classics lectures, um, sort of a- anything except sort of my own course. But I, I still felt that there wasn't a future for me in sort of outside of maths because I just wasn't that person. And for a long time, I thought about writing because my friends would say, my friends would always ask me for rec- restaurant recommendations. And I, I was like the person they would come to and they were like, oh, why don't you start a blog? Um, because at, at the time, sort of blogs were the sort of predominant way of, sort of getting yourself noticed in, in the food world. And I just, I just never got around to doing it. And I, I had no confidence in, in myself as a writer because I, I still had this mindset that, like, no, you're, you're a logical thinker, not a, you're not creative. And it, mm-hmm. it took me so long to realise that's a false dichotomy. Um, w- one... Mm, yeah. M- one maths is an extremely creative subject, and, and I think the the best mathematicians are able to make these incredibly creative leaps to find proofs. So, one, I, I was wrong about that. Um, but two, I, I was I was just wrong that I I wasn't a creative person, um, and and that your I guess that your your course is not necessarily sort of set for you when from from a very young age that you, you can work at these things I started writing in for, for Eater London in 2018 and that, that was really the first piece of writing that I had sort of published since I felt like I didn't know how to write and I I went through so many edits and and so many getting so many second opinions before submitting anything yeah I think Natty and I could definitely empathize oh with that is, yeah and like I think also um I it, it still sounds like you're being too harsh on yourself because as I say that even that forum post genuinely if I was looking back on that I would be like that was a great piece of writing for me it's been really interesting seeing the development of Vittles and um and also seeing names like yourself like Ruby who we obviously interviewed on growing up with Galdem make your mark within what was I think prior to this and what you what you kind of touched on already a very closed off um food writing space do you feel sort of fully enmeshed in that space now do you feel like there are like some writers who just need to go and gorge themselves and stop taking up their like space and and not writing about the vast range of restaurants etc that are in existence in the UK I I just love to get a kind of broad overview on how you think the uh, food writing industry is looking at the moment I guess yeah that's a really good question I I still very much feel like an outsider within the industry I don't feel embedded in it at all 
And I think that's a strength. There's this very interesting view of history. Um, I'm, I'm sure it has a, an actual name that all history is, is, is the process of sort of disadvantages becoming advantages suddenly. So it, it wasn't that the British were innately superior to everyone else. It was the fact that their position in, in the North and having all these, these sort of coal fields, which at that one point were completely useless, suddenly became useful with the Industrial Revolution and they had a head start because of that. It wasn't due to, due to much else. And I, I think me not being enmeshed within the food, in, food writing industry until a very, very late age and the fact that I wasn't confident enough to start writing until the age of 29 um, has actually been a strength because, I mean, I, I actually work another job and still work another job, which I consider to be my job. And write, oh, wow. writing is something else. And, and Vittles is something else as well. And that's allowed me to kind of pick and choose what I want to do because I, I've had the financial security of knowing that. If yeah. I didn't have the financial security... I, I would not have been able to write those huge guides for E to London because they take up so much time. I also, I'm sure I would have been forced to write a lot of stuff for other publications that I... You have to compromise a lot more. Exactly. I, I probably wouldn't have been proud of them or maybe I would have ended up writing for publications which I was like completely ideologically opposed to, which you have to yeah. do if you're a freelance writer. So... That, that reluctance to write and the lack of confidence I had ha has actually kind of turned into a strength. And I mean, even the fact I studied maths may, may have been a strength as well. Um, I think yeah. it, it might, it gives my writing something which maybe you don't see so much within the food writing space. I, I think I, I'm, I'm very, one thing I, which I, I think Vittles is all about is, is making these connections between things which haven't been connected before, whether it's connecting food writing to something outside of it or connecting different branches of food writing. Um, because there is so much great food writing that goes on. Um, a lot of it is academic. Some of it is literary. Not everything is within this sort of legacy media space. But then in terms of where food writing is, is at the moment... I don't think there's been a significant improvement within um, Brit the diversity exactly um, in the last year. And you have a look at what's going on in America and in last year um, with the Bon Appetit um, scandal. Oh my gosh! And that that's a reckoning that has been a long time coming, and it's been a long time coming because. Not because food media is worse than other areas of media, because as we all know, like, the media is not diverse. It's rampant. Yeah. yeah. I think where the problem has... Why is it food media is something I've been thinking about for a while. And I think the problem is, is that it's the gap between the image of it and the reality of it. I, food media likes to project itself as this, as this very liberal space as um, this very diverse space and it should be because food is something that anyone can write about everyone has an experience of food um, it's an immediate experience and you, you shouldn't need 
to be like a technically great writer to communicate something that's w worth communicating about food and it's still dominated on grounds of race and it's dominated on grounds of class and it leads to this like very very narrow vision of food and when writers of color get uh, allowed in that space it's really only to write about their exactly, culture yeah it's kind of like yeah. i'm gonna be like the translator of like communicating yeah. my culture to this white audience these issues are going on now within british food media space like we have our own bon appetits here where the same structures have taken place how do you think the industry should move forward what steps do you think it could take to actually like make meaningful meaningful change in that regard because it does feel like like you said we we're talking about when you were uh, speaking about kind of like the new york stamp of approval it feels like other cultures and like diversity is only really allowed in through the gate in like short bursts or when like it has a white cosign how do you think we move to a place where the food industry or the food media is actually a truly diverse space to exist in i i think there's two things that there's there's one about improving the legacy media space as it is. I think this will not happen until... I really don't think that it will happen until there's significant editorial change. Either that change will come from just people retiring or it will come from in the way that Bon Appetit did, where something comes out about, mm. about an editor and they have to resign. The second thing is, well, how do we create these own spaces um, and make them equitable yeah. and make them viable and, and Vittles is a part of that it's but it, it, it's still very very small scale like I really have to think like how do I do, do I stay small uh, as I am and uh, it, it's good because I'm able to to pay people a fairer wage or yeah do I or do I grow and and, and try to to grow it into something that will change the discourse and 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 be its own yeah to create this space for others it is that freedom of being on the outskirts and being able to say okay cool like i actually don't need you to do what to do what we need like let's just not wait for that acceptance create our own thing and then challenge from from the the margins but it is this completely different beast. It's not like, okay, cool, I run this thing and I get to edit everything and I pick these people and I'm writing and like, it's, it's all within my field of vision. It's like managing and it's like scaling up as its, its own massive challenge. So I completely understand that conundrum. Going back to your extract, I wanted to ask like, what advice would you give to your younger self who wrote this amazing piece for Green Lanes? Or maybe specifically to your younger self who felt that he had to go back and edit and kind of like revise his, his position on this extract that you, get, that you shared with us today? One part of me would not want to say anything, but I think I would tell young, young Jonathan that I think what I was talking about before, that, that you can be creative if you work on it. You don't need to worry about your own writing compared to other writers because your voice is your own and it is unique. There's no point trying to write like other people, even if you admire them. I mean, you, you can take stuff from them, but you, you can't write like them because you are not them. I really, really relate to this, but it's like, 
I think I feel like you're like me in terms of kind of almost obsessively looking at surveying the whole landscape and then like you aggressively compare yourself to all of these other people and yet at the same time these are the other people who when they do see your work and they see your talent they're able to to know and notice that to recognize something of probably of themselves in you thank you so much for joining us on the show that was great to talk about I'm it's like looking in the mirror I was just I was floored by his like I, the fact that journalists like him still have the same self-doubt that you have as a person. So I think it's slightly reassuring, slightly worrying, you know, in equal, yeah. in equal measure. Equal um, measure. But he's just, he's just so smart and had such good things to say about, I'd never fully made the like explicit link between London and England's imperial history yeah. as the very reason why you have amazing Caribbean food, amazing African food, amazing Chinese food, you know? Yeah, I literally wrote that down as a note <laughs> back to myself. I was like, imperial history. Yes, mm. correct. Um, and, and yeah, we can talk with glee and, and happiness about the fact that we have access to all these like different food cultures. But actually, yeah. it ties into something quite dark. <laughs> dark and I, I feel like that's another reason. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I feel like that's another reason why we need to show like adequate respect for especially the kind of colonised nations foods uh food, mm-hmm. like restaurants and stuff that exist in london and, uh, and the authentic and ones <laughs> yeah quote unquote <laughs> yeah yeah Hashtag. Um, <laughs> because they deserve our support and and they've had to battle hard to not only exist here in the uk but mm. um sort of stay quote unquote authentic so yeah i'm gonna be hitting up silk road amongst many oh, other man. venues i do miss the takeaway <laughs> i'm not gonna lie that's my one thing i missed from from London is the takeaway and Marks and Spencer's. Oh, is, is there less of a takeaway culture where you are at the moment? Yeah, I would say it's like, I think just like places that weren't colonizers just have less immigrant culture in general, like or like less of a variety. So while you can get great food, it's just like, I just feel like the range isn't as, as wide and yeah, people eat in their homes a lot more, I think. There's, yeah, yeah. yeah got to get yourself some invites around to some new south african friends houses Mm. this has been an ii studios production thank you so much for listening we really hope you enjoyed this episode don't forget you can sign up to become a member at gal-dem.com for access to exclusive discounts with our favorite brands and partners early access to tickets for galdem events an advanced copy of our annual print issue and so much more Make sure you're following us on all major social media platforms at Galdemzine for the latest independent journalism or visit our website, which is gal-dem.com. Galdem has a book, I Will Not Be Erased, Our Stories About Growing Up as People of Colour. It's available in all good bookstores or online. If you loved this episode of Growing Up with Galdem, be sure to subscribe, rate and leave a review. We'll catch you on the next episode. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. 